everyone to episode 76 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Byron Branch, who happens to be live here in person. So uh, Byron is with uh, Dayton FOP 44. He's a police officer uh, for just a little over five years. And on this episode, we're going to actually discuss uh, a pretty bad car accident on the highway where a car hit his cruiser while he was outside of it, and he ended up losing his right leg from that. But he's been back working uh, full duty on a job for a couple years now. He's also a fencer for Team USA. So uh, with that being said, let's just bring Byron in and let him tell his story and, and really how he's overcome everything. All right, Byron Branch. Welcome to the studio, if, if you want to call it that. Nobody can see us, so we, we can act like it's a real studio. Fair enough. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, let's just jump right into it. All right. Let's go back in time to December 16th, 2016. Okay. So you're on duty. You respond to a uh, wreck on the highway, I-75, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of take us from there. Okay. Uh, I'm actually going to backtrack a little bit uh, before I even got on duty, as I was coming on duty that day, since I haven't remember what was going on. Sitting in roll call, I remember the sergeant telling us that um, we were supposed to have bad weather, but it was supposed to start at 7 o'clock that afternoon. Um, I distinctly remember, earlier in that afternoon, I was talking to a, uh, I guess it was in the evening, it was probably like 6 or so, talking to a juvenile, because um, mom called in, she wasn't listening, wanted, her, wanted us to take her to JJC, I was like, nah, it's not going to happen. Um, mom really just wanted a break, you know, from the kids or whatever. So we sat mom down, talked to her, realized there was like no Christmas presents in the house at all. Started to talk to the kid, realized she came from like a, just a really bad situation. So another officer was there backing me up on the call. I was talking to him. I was like, man, I, you know, I feel bad for these kids. Um, we should do something for them. You know, we should get some stuff for them for Christmas. Like, yeah, that's a great idea. That was probably like 7.30 at night or so. Um, it had been a slow, slow night because it was cold. But the weather, again, still wasn't bad. And I was, I remember telling him as we were leaving, I was like, you know, uh, Sarge said the weather was supposed to get bad here around 7 or so, but, you know, the weather was fine. So driving around Old North Dayton, um, I think I was on like Warner. Cause I remember looking at this crazy fixture this lady had in her, uh, in the window of her house and just thinking that that was strange. I remember I texted my wife. It was about 9.30. Now I was just, uh, just on standard patrol. And I remember it was about 10.45 or 11 o'clock it started uh, sleeting a little bit. And I was like, oh, here must be the weather that Sarge was talking about. And then my buddy uh, Hubbard, who's from my class, he was on the highway. And uh, he's like, hey, I got a wreck out here. And it was at Stanley and 75, which is an atrocious area of the highway, especially northbound. There's always tons of accidents there. So he's on the highway. He's like, I got a two-hard crash. I'm like, well, I'm not surprised. The weather's starting to turn sideways. Just uh, when I was driving on like Kiwi and Wayne, it started looking like a basketball court almost. You could see the reflection in the road from the sleet starting to build up. Um, so I'm not thinking much of it because he said it's just a regular car crash. Like cars crash there all the time. But then he gets back on the radio a couple uh, a couple minutes later and says, well, now two more cars have crashed. And now he's got a four-car crash on the highway. I was like, oh, okay. And then before he could even get off the radio, he says, oh, wait, another car just crashed. I was like, okay, well, now he's up to five. Um, I was like, well, I'm available. I'm going to leave. I was at the second district at the time. I was like, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go help him out. So I started driving down Wayne Avenue. Um, now the weather's just awful, and I'm driving like really slow. And they said another car crashed, and so now he's up to six cars. And they said another one hit, so now he's up to seven. <laughs> so seven cars have officially crashed in front of him as he's sitting there at Stanley Route 4. I, uh, I go down Wayne, I uh, turn right on Kiwi, and then I hop on 
Actually, no, I'm sorry. I don't turn around on Kiwi. I keep going down the lane. And I turn left on the 35 because that'll take you westbound to get to 75. So I'm on 35, and as I get to where 35 and 75 connect, there is an officer sitting in like the gore where 75 uh, northbound and 35 come together, and there's like a, a blue Saturn, I think, in front of them. So I pull up next to him. I'm like, hey, what, what happened? It's like, oh, you know, I'm on this overtime detail. This car's got an accident. It's like, but right up there in front of us was a semi that he had said just got hit. He said like a Toyota Corolla ran into the side of it. He saw it wreck right in front of him. I said, oh, well, I'm on my way to go help Hubbard out up the street because there's a seven car crash up there and um, he's going to need some assistance up there. And he said, oh, okay. I said, but before I go up there, I'll go check to make sure everybody's good with the, with the semi. He said, all right. So I drive up uh, to the semi, which is probably only like maybe 100, 150 yards in front of us. Uh, it was right underneath like the second street exit sign on 75 North. And when I pull up behind it, I call out the, the tag for the semi and then I wake up in the hospital. That's it. I don't remember anything in between that. Anything else um, has been filled in for me by either the media, uh, the news, just videos I've seen you know, of the accident. I don't remember talking to the driver or anything like that. I don't remember getting out of the car. I know I got out of the car because I obviously said something to the guy. Um, but I don't, I don't have any memory really of what happened to that up until I woke up in the, uh, in the hospital. And then my memory about what actually occurred or what I thought I had remembered, like being in the ambulance and stuff like that, was completely different than what I thought. And I only found that out years later when I ran into a, um, uh, a medic on an overdose call. It was the, the night of the tornado back in May, actually. And he, re <clears throat> he remembered me because he said he was out working that night. And so I asked him, I was like, hey, was I fighting you guys like in the medic or anything like that? I was like, Cause I remember I was grabbing onto somebody yelling or something. He's like, no, you didn't move at all. And I was like, oh, so I must have been dreaming or I misremembered, you know, all those events happening because I was in and out of consciousness the whole time. So I wake up in the hospital. Um, I remember <laughs> I remember looking down and it sounded funny because I said something. I didn't realize I was missing my teeth at the time. And um, I remember I looked over at my wife and I looked down and I realized, you know, part of my leg was missing because at that point in time I still had... Um, I had my knee at the time, but I was missing probably about every, if you go from my kneecap down, I had about six inches of it and everything else was just gone. And I, I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, you know, how am I supposed to fence? And then the doctor came in, said something to me, and I fell asleep again. I don't remember what he said, but it is my understanding later that the conversation I had had with the doctor was him explaining to me that because they were unable to stop the bleeding from just major damage I had to my arteries down there and the fact that I was having necrosis in my skin that they were going to have to amputate above my knee, uh, which includes uh, getting rid of all the joints there and then cutting off the end of the femur bone. And so when I woke up from that surgery, which was my fourth surgery, um, I remember being in probably about 100 times more pain than I was when I woke up initially the first time. So, yeah, that takes us to about the hospital. Can you... Go back and to the actual accident and fill everybody in on what transpired, what what everybody else, like what actually happened and and um, how you ended up getting to the hospital and everything like that. Sure. Um, so as it was explained to me, I get out of the car. The guy comes around his passenger side of his semi and starts to come in between the semi and and my car. Um, I shout at him not to come over there because I knew that the roads were bad just because of how long it took me to get up there. And, and he d makes a motion. He goes over to the passenger side of my car. Now, what happens right after that, I'm not entirely sure. Um, 
I, I think we meet up towards the trunk of my car. Like I got to be standing on the driver's side by the trunk of my car. And I'm not sure where he's at. I don't know if he is back by my trunk or if he's back by my other tire. Um, but at some point, um, a car that was coming around, uh, that had just gotten off 35, that was on 75, that was coming around the corner, lost control, spun completely around and smashed its whole driver's side up against the back rear of uh, my cruiser. Um, I've heard different stories. I've heard that uh, I pushed the guy out of the way, which means he would have had been standing right in front of me. Um, I've also heard that he got hit by the car as well because both his, I know both his femurs were broken and supposedly his wife came and like talked to me in the hospital, um, I think. And I, I think I remember that because I remember a woman talked to me that had an accident because he was a foreign guy. Um, so then after we got struck, I must have lost conscious temporarily because I landed on my face, which is why I have the scar above my uh, eyebrow. And um, when I landed on my face, it must have knocked out my four front teeth, my two main front ones on the two to the left um and i was laying face down now this is one of the problems that we had that night there was a dispatcher who was learn she was in the process of learning uh, how to do her job and my crew number was very close to another crew and when i called out the stop she put the wrong crew on my call so it looked like i was still available for service so there's no reason to check up on me um, luckily for me, there was a sergeant out west who was my firearms instructor who recognized my voice when I called out the traffic stop. And he didn't hear my voice for uh, four or five minutes, and there was no checks that were done on me. So he said, hey, can I get a, can I get a roll call on the radio because we haven't heard this crew checkup. So they go through all the crew numbers. They get to mine. She gasps me for me like four or five times and then goes on to the next crew. And he said, no, go back. He said, where, where is this one? And that's when Pharaoh got on the radio and said, hey, I'm not. 141a which was my crew he's like i'm not him like you put me on this traffic crash he's like i'm not out there yet so we got to find out where i'm at and then that's when the emergency call came in uh there was a guy who said hey i hit a police officer on the highway and that came in right before they dropped the tone for me and then they realized that i was on 75 so then um my buddy camden who's from my class um was the first one on scene and he, I guess, rolled me over and asked me if I was okay. Uh, according to what he said, I was just in and out of consciousness. I think I talked to him some. And uh, he started to, uh, he did like the basic like, dragon pull that we're taught. He crossed my arms over my chest and started to pull me uh, across the highway back to his cruiser because he was going to take me to the hospital. Because he, he thought I was dead when he got there because I was laying face down. I was covered in blood head to toe. But that was from the laceration I suffered on my face and my, uh, my eye. Because he said he could see my skull because it was split open partially. And uh, so he, he thought I was dead until I started talking to him. But as he was dragging me, because I guess his adrenaline was going, he didn't notice that there was only ligaments holding the bottom half of my leg on. So the other officer that was there told him to um, put a tourniquet on my leg so you know I wouldn't bleed to death. But by then, by the time they found me, I had already been out there. I had been hit. I was already out there for about five minutes. So if I had been out there another two minutes, I would have lost uh, enough blood that I would have died from that. Um, so by the time I got the tourniquet on, that's when the ambulance showed up. And it was the ambulance that took me to the hospital. So that's my best recollection of what happened and how it happened. Um, the, the big problem with it is the camera that was actually, there was a camera directly over top of where I was that would be able to show everything exactly how it happened. Uh, but that camera happened to not be working that night. So the closest one is one that was like 100 yards to the north that caught the, you can see the SUV like spin around and hit the cruiser, but you can't really tell like where we're at. So, and I know when 
Cameron got there, at first he said he didn't even see the other guy because when he got hit, he got moved um, to, I don't know, five or ten feet away from me. So he didn't even see him initially. And, and then they saw him and realized that he got hit too. But I think we were both knocked unconscious. So, yeah, I neither one of us have a, a whole lot that we could say that would put piece it together, really. And maybe he has a better memory than I do of what happened, you know. But with, with how it happened, how fast it happened, there I don't, I don't have any, like, real good memory of exactly how the events unfolded so let me uh switch to your wife uh-huh. you know she's sitting at home you got a you got a pretty little one at that point in time right yeah and uh and all of a sudden she gets a knock on the door and she sees a cruiser mm-hmm. i mean has she ever kind of talked to you about what was going through her head and and everything uh, sure. Yeah. So I can't remember exactly who went to the house and, and neither could she. They knock on the door. The weather, like I said, was terrible. So it took everybody forever to get anywhere. Um, they came, they had told her that I was in the hospital, but they didn't say whether or not I was uh, dead or alive, but that she needed to come with them. So she calls her grandparents. Her grandparents come over to the house. And our grandparents only live maybe eight minutes away from us, but she said it took almost a half hour for them to get to the house just because the roads were so bad. They get to the house. She ends up uh, leaving with the police comes down to the hospital and by the time she talks to me three hours have gone by so for three hours she has no idea like if I'm alive or not she's basically just sitting around waiting to hear um, from the doctors when everybody was saying uh, I know when I got there they had some issues with getting the, the bleeding under control and getting my heart rate down uh, I guess my heart rate was uh, like two, 200 something 220 beats per minute or something it was super elevated and they were having a really hard time getting that under control um, and then once I got it down to like a manageable, like 180, which is where I think it stayed at for like three or four days, um, they brought her back in to, to see me. And she said, she said she was fine once she knew that I was alive. They, they said that the worst thing they told her is that I was going to have to have my leg amputated. And she told them that I was going to be really upset because I wouldn't be able to fence anymore because um, I had to fence for, you know, forever and ever and ever. And it was one of my favorite sports that I participated in. But it's really hard to participate in a sport that requires a tremendous amount of footwork if you only got one foot, so... <laughs> that's uh that's what she told me basically was that she had to wait a really long time to figure out if I was okay but once she found out that that was the worst thing that was going to happen but that I was going to live she was fine how long did you end up being in the hospital for 12 days from start to finish and the thing I found most upsetting about the whole thing really was that they um they wouldn't let me home for Christmas because it was my daughter's first Christmas and I wanted to be home for that um but uh, they said I needed to stay, finish up some rehab, and they had some more testing that they had to do. Um, so I ended up being released on the 27th instead of the 25th. But it was, it was sometime in the morning, I think. I don't even remember a whole lot of being out because my wife had told me that as I was leaving, like there were, you know, there was a line of like police officers and stuff standing by me. But I, honestly, I don't remember my memory of being in the hospital even. Um, was so in and out. I remember handfuls of conversations. Like, prime example, my wife was there the whole time. Right? I don't remember talking to her once, but I do remember talking to the chief. I remember talking to a select handful of officers um, while I was in there. I remember being woken up in the middle of the night every day by this nurse who would have to stab me in the stomach with blood thinners, and that drove me crazy. I don't know why she didn't just let me sleep. Plus, I had four IVs in me. I don't know why they didn't just put it in one of those. But it was one of those things where if they were going to administer the blood thinners, you had to be awake for it, and they had to let you know. So she'd just wake me up and hit me right in the stomach every time. That was super obnoxious. But like, I don't remember eating or drinking anything. I don't remember using the bathroom. Um, I vaguely, vaguely remember going to um, 
rehab. I remember like doing that once. I don't ever remember talking to my parents or anything like that, even though I know they were there. Um, so my memory of that's very hit or miss. I don't even really remember a lot of January for the most part. When did you finally feel like you got your, your memory back? And Probably February. Because people would still come to the house and I don't remember any of that stuff. And that's the biggest thing is the, the gaps in my memory that have to be filled in by other people, you know, because my wife would ask me all the time, oh, do you remember when this person came over? Do you remember this in the hospital? I'm like, well, look, if you're going to ask me if I remember anything in the hospital, I don't. I told her everything multiple times that I that I do remember from being in the hospital and people I do remember speaking to. But if I hadn't mentioned it, then no, I don't remember it at all. When you kind of came to, mm-hmm. like come February, we remember everything and, and you're as we say, alert and orient, you know what's going on, you know what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's kind of going through your head at that point in time? Like, uh, I mean, the fencing, the job, the family, I mean, I, I can only imagine. So, a good buddy of mine from Israel um, came to visit me, and I started remembering people coming to visit me, and, you know, they would ask me, even one of the old fencing coaches came to see me and asked me, you know, well, what are your plans for, for fencing now? Like, what are you going to do? And I was like, you know, I don't know, but my, my buddy Laurent was like, you should really try the, the wheelchair fence and stuff. And that was in 2017 when he mentioned it to me. And I was like, nah, I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, I really like the idea of just being up on my feet. I was like, you know, I think I'll be able to figure out how to do it standing up again. And he's like, well, okay, I was like, well, if you ever think about it or you reconsider, he's like, I think that's something you should really do. I think you'd be good at it. And I never really put much of it into my head. Now, I do know I had been on the couch for, gosh, I don't know, eight weeks or something. Where I didn't do any physical activity, nothing like that. I was 195 pounds when I got hit. Um, I was really strong, real, in really good physical shape. And when I got home, and probably about mid February, I think I was down to 150, 150, 155. Um, I was super weak all the time. And I remember a nurse telling me that like for every one day you're in the hospital, it takes about three days of recovery. So I was like, okay, it's gonna take about 30, 30, 40 days to get back to normal. Now. They gave they put me on these things these little insure drinks which are actually for really old not old but like elderly people to help um, help them get in a certain amount of calcium and protein and stuff like that but they're like drink these so I was drinking like six of those a day just to try try and get something down because I didn't have much of an appetite for like the first month that I was home and what really changed it around was this one officer's wife made me this meatloaf and mashed potatoes that was like the best thing ever so <laughs> I ended up eating a, a ton of that started getting my appetite back slowly but surely and uh, come about. I don't know. I know sometime in February is when I started having to regularly go to the uh, the prosthetist, try and talk to them, figure out how I'm gonna get my prosthetic stuff set up. Cause I had I had to uh, first I had to go to the hospital and get my stitches taken out of my leg before I could even start wearing any of that stuff. And from the surgery and everything, my leg had swollen up to like it was crazy. I think my leg it must have been like 30 inches around or something, and that was just from all the all the water that got stuck down in there as my leg was trying to heal and eventually over time the fluid started leaving that area and they're like okay we can start fitting you for different socks and stuff like that and initially the pain was unbelievable um i was on this stuff in the rotten also called gabapentin for about eight weeks or so and i didn't really like taking meds they gave me a bunch of oxide and take any of them because i like to feel like i'm in control and as the uh the germans will tell you you know the pain is letting you know you're healed is kind of how the phrase would go uh, in German. So um, I decided not to take any, didn't take any oxys. I most of would take like a Tylenol. And 
what I had to do. I had to really just focus on uh, other things to take my mind off just the constant pain. I mean, you're in pain 24 hours a day. It was my sciatic nerve was killing me. Um, and just to describe what the phantom limb pain felt like when I first had it was just unbelievable. It, it would feel like anything between somebody sticking nails underneath my toenails and peeling them off or somebody taking like a burning hot cheese grater and grating off the skin off the top of my foot. And, and that's 24 hours a day. It felt like that. So I'm sweating the whole time. I can't sleep. I'm sleeping like maybe one to two hours a day because the pain was just so bad. Um, and then I had to go to the hospital, get my stitches removed. So Brian, the same officer that saved my life, he took me, took me up to the hospital uh, I had about 30 staples in my leg. The lady had to take out. I mean, she did it out. She did it fast. The only thing that sucked was, um, I, all the staples had been scabbed over. So she had to soak, she had to soak it in like warm water to get the scabs loosened up, peel off all those and then pull all the staples out. And she did it fast. Like, I think she did it in probably like 40 seconds, but I'm like screaming the whole time. Like, Oh my God, what are you doing? She's like, all oh, the faster we do it, we'll get it over with. And she just took them all out really quick. Go back to the go back to the house. He takes me back home, <laughs> and sure enough, I'm really not used to being in a wheelchair because I spent most of my time on the couch, and I wanted to show him this guitar that I had just got. And so I'm pulling it off the bed. My feet aren't on the ground. I slide out of the chair and I land right on my limb. It starts bleeding all over the place. And he's like, "Oh my god, what do I do?" I'm like, "Well, I was like, I'm a fall. I'm I'm a fall risk. This is the third time I've fallen, mind you." Um, so I was like, "I'm a fall risk. Like, just call the medic." So by, by the time they get there, the bleeding stopped, and I'm fine because the the ambulance is right around the corner from my house. I think they can get to my house in 20 seconds. So, uh, but by the time a call gets in and everything, it's been about three or four minutes. And they get there. And I'm like, guys, I'm fine. I'm just bleeding because I got these stitches taken out. And they're like, oh, you got to stop falling. It's like, all right. And honestly, I haven't fallen since then. So, because I'm, I'm, well, that's not true. I have, but I didn't land on it because I'm really good at knowing how to fall. So, um, after about, like I said, after about eight weeks, uh, beat on the couch. I, I told my wife, I said, look, I need to get back into the gym because that is where I'll start to feel like myself the most. So after 10 weeks of being on the couch, I finally got back to the gym and it was it, awful, awful. I could, I could do 30 sets of pull-ups, no problem. I did five and had to lay down on the floor. I was winded, couldn't catch my breath, nothing. Could barely bench 135 pounds. But on the upside, I knew my muscle memory would kick in um, and I enjoyed doing it. It gave me kind of like purpose again because I had no idea when I was getting back to work. I, I didn't know what what was going to happen. I still didn't have a I didn't have a prosthetic. You know, I, I was just getting used to the silicone sleeves that they gave us. Um, so I didn't I didn't have an idea of like what the timeline was going to be. Were they even giving you odds at this point in time? Who, who? Um, the doctors? Odds for what? Coming back to work. Like time wise. Just even the fact that, I mean, were you going to be able to do that? And if so, how long was it going to, going well, to take? Honestly, they really, they, they really left it up to me because when the chief, so remember when I was telling you, like when I was in the hospital, there were certain conversations I could remember. Sure. Well, the chief came and I talked to him and I remember talking to him and I remember he, he asked me, he's like, he's like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, I was like, please don't send me to TRU. That's like the telephone reporting unit where like you, answer, <laughs> yeah, you, you answer the phone and people are like, ah, oh, somebody stole my trash can. And I was like, I, please just, I don't want to do that. And he's like, well, what, what do you have in mind? I was like, if you send me to the police academy, I can rehab myself. I can work out. I can do everything I need to do when I'm there. Um, plus, it'll keep me around people. TRU, I'm not going to be around anybody. I'm just going to be by myself. I was like, but keep me around people. Keep me preoccupied. And I was like, and I'll do fine. I can, I can rehab myself. And he's like, okay. He's like, whatever you want. I was like, we'll do that. So there was never that conversation that like, you're done here. It was more of whenever you're ready to come back, come back. And I remember, actually, I remember another conversation with the sergeant. She had said, when you come back, who do you want to double with? 
And I told him I wanted to double with my buddy Robbie. And she's like, are you sure? I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, I can, me, me and his personalities will, will work together fine. Because we're the exact opposite, but we even each other out really well. So um, we, uh, she was like, okay, if that's, if that's who you want to work with, you, we can get that set up. So I got back, got back to the gym mid-February, started working on, uh, like I said, wearing different things on, on my residual limb to get used to it. Because it takes a lot of time to get used to the sensations on there. And initially, you know, it's, it's really painful getting used to any new sensations. But I started doing a lot of reading online uh, about what I could do and uh, started using some of the techniques that, that were given there about like different fabrics you can rub on your leg and, and how to, you have to break up the, the, um, the scar tissue so it doesn't get, so it doesn't get too stiff. So periodically you'd have to go to where all the stitching was and you'd have to like pull on the skin. You'll hear it, it, would, it would crack and break almost kind of like celery is what it would, what it would sound and feel like. Um, so you do that to, to get you used to um, all the new sensations you're going to feel once you put a prosthetic on. Because once you do that, you're, you're starting to bear weight on it again, and that's a whole different ball game. So um, I worked on that stuff a little bit. Ended up meeting with uh, the hangar clinic and working on my a lot of my rehab stuff there, even before I had an actual limb on. Because I had to get used to building up strength in my leg and, and learning how my body worked. I didn't even get my prosthetic though the one I use now until May 25th so from December 27th when I got home until May 25th I wasn't walking on anything so I had a lot of muscle atrophy and in my glutes and stuff like that now I used a walker initially the first time I used a walker I fell and that was awful I thought I was here I was laying on the couch um this is probably like uh, the first of January I think I'm laying on the couch I thought I hear my daughter crying in the next room I get up and what my mind is incredibly fast and like get on the walker and rush over to it. Well, there's a step, there's two steps there that I don't see. So the walker goes one way, I go the other way. I still think I have a right leg, I don't. I put out that my leg to catch my fall and I land right on the end of my limb. Call the ambulance, do the whole nine. And then they ask me like, well, what on earth were you doing? Like, well, I thought clothes in here. Like, no, we even told you she wasn't. And they said that I was moving really, really slow, like in slow motion. And they kept asking me, what are you doing? What are you doing? But I wouldn't stop. My wife would tell me periodically I would wake up in the middle of the night and just walk around the house and she'd wake up and there'd be blood all over the place from my uh, my leg just bleeding like all over the wood floors. And she'd be like, what were you doing? I'm like, I didn't even know I got up. So the medication they had me on, um, I, think it was, she said, I think she said I was on 20 different medications that she had to administer for me because if you, if you mix them or gave them the wrong way, they would cause your heart to have all kinds of issues. So she really helped in taking care of a lot of that for me. Um, Are you on any of that so, stuff today? Mm -mm. No, and what I found helped work the best for my phantom limb pain was acupuncture. Didn't want to do it at first, but again, how I had those people who would come visit me, the guy who came with one of the fencing coaches was one of the um, fencer's dads, and I told him the kind of pain I was having, and he told me, he said, you know, you should check out acupuncture. He's like, I get it every six months. I have this crazy pain in my back, but that's what works really well for me. So I said, okay, you know, I'll check it out. So I went and I visited this lady over on Loop Road, and uh, she told me, she's like, look, come three times. If it doesn't work by the third time, this isn't going to work for you. It's like, it works for some people, it doesn't work for everybody. And I, I kid you not, she asked me where my pain was. She was like, okay, let me see your left hand. She's like, your left hand represents your right foot and your body, the way that your body's connected. I was like, okay. And I just let her do what she's doing or whatever. So she sticks six needles in, in between each one of my knuckles, um, a bunch of them on the top of my hand. She's like, okay, where's your pain hurt the most? I was like, man, if I had a foot still, it's in the arch of my foot. It feels like I'm standing on a broom handle and I've got like a hundred pound duffel bag on. Like, and it's just, it's pinpoint right there. She's like, oh, she's like, that's this part of your hand. So she folds my pinky down over onto my palm and sticks a needle right where the tip of my pinky is into my palm. Pain goes away. 
I mean, it was instantaneous. The second she put it in there, I was like, oh my God. And it was like, I can breathe for the first time in like three months. So I was like, that's incredible. She's like, yeah, that's the spot. So I went back for one more treatment, been fine since. Now, do I still have phantom limb pain? Sure, but it's not pain, it's more sensation. Like if I describe it to you right now, it feels like somebody's like grabbing my foot with like a warm towel, which is much better than feeling like you have your toenails ripped off for 24 hours straight. So I can live with that. And most of the time, especially when my prosthetics on, if I'm walking, I don't feel it and I don't think about it. Nice. Now, at what point do you end up going back to full duty? And what kind of, you know, did they throw you, you know, make you do a bunch of different tests to make sure, I mean, you're able to still function and all that stuff beforehand? Well, let's go back to when I got on light duty first. Okay. So, it's uh, it's June, June or July. I can't even remember. I want to say it's June. I was so tired of sitting on the couch doing nothing. Like, I started going to the gym regularly again, which was all kinds of fun because, like I said, I didn't get my prosthetic until May 25th, so almost the beginning of June. But I've been lifting since February. So I'm going to the gym with either a walker or crutches, which you can imagine. I'm trying to carry these 45-pound plates with one leg and put them up on the bench and all this other stuff. So I'm doing a lot of stuff on my butt, scooting around. I have people help me, you know. Um, so I did that for a long time. Got the prosthetic. Had to get used to to wearing it. So I imagine it's probably July when I went back. Um, but once I had that on there, they asked me like, Hey, you know, are you ready to come back? I was like, yeah, sure. I can, I can try the light duty stuff. And that's when I started my physical therapy with my physical therapist who actually met me there, which was another reason why I wanted to do it at the Academy and not TRU based. Um, cause if, if I was doing TRU, well, I'm still required to like take calls they come in that are ones you can do over the phone. Whereas if I'm at the Academy, I'm doing that. I can focus solely just on um, the rehab aspect so she would come out there and I mean she ran me through the ringer for months she had me going over obstacles climb like we went to the art, Dayton Art Museum and she had me walk all the stairs there I'm like lady there's like 400 steps here she's like you gotta get used to it took me out to the to the uh, fire academy's training place the place on McFadden mm -hmm. yeah that building she made me put on all my gear walk up all those steps walk all the way down the steps walk up all those steps walk up down walk down steps. she made me go through your obstacles in some of those rooms like where I'm crawling down on my knees and did you, did you go up the outside ladder yeah, all of it. So we used to call Tuesdays where you go, you know, up the ladder on the outside, down those steps, up again. And mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was that was good times on our academy. Yeah, so I'm doing all this stuff with this lady, and I'm wondering, I'm thinking to myself, why am I doing all this? Then we would get cruisers. It's like, okay, I want you to get in and out of it as quick as you can. And I was, it was actually really helpful because, one, it helped me figure out how to do it more efficiently, how to get in and out, as opposed to me just discovering it when I'm there. Yeah. Um. So she, uh, she was like, okay, get in and out of the passenger side too. So I started, I started learning how to do that. Um, I, I got really used to like how my body was working. So she said, okay, what are, what are we going to do if you get in a physical altercation? And I was like, I don't know, I'll figure it out. Like I'm a pretty strong guy. It shouldn't be a problem. She's like, well, we need to find somebody that you can, that you can, uh, train with. I said, okay. So I was only one person I could think of. And that was the guy who taught our defensive tactics stuff. So I contact him and I was like, look, this is it. And, and by then everybody knows, you know, what my situation is. I was like, look, I need to, I need to do some kind of hand to hand training. Would you be interested in it? And would you come in with, uh, with me once so I can kind of see where I'm at? He said, sure. No problem, man. He came in, he came in on a Tuesday, beat me up for two hours, came in on Thursday, beat me up for two more hours and then did it for three months. So for four hours every week for like three months, I'm getting beat up by this guy who's like an expert in this stuff, but it was great. And I mean, my leg, my leg would come off all the time. He's like, you can use it as a weapon. And he showed me how to take people down because he really wanted to see how my body would function, you know? And, and even since then, I've been in a couple fights since then and you know, I haven't had any issues. So he came out 
help me get training with that. And now to answer your original question about getting on a full duty, did I have to do any tests or anything like that? The only thing I had to do was the same thing you have to do if you get hurt for anybody. And that was just requalify with my firearm, which was cake, you know? So, uh, I came back on full duty. It was, uh, December 15th, 2017. So 364 days later, <laughs> but I had another kid, uh, let's see, January 10th. So I was, I only worked, I think I worked eight working days and then I was off for another two months. So it, it was, that was kind of nerve wracking only because they had switched the computer systems that we used. So I was completely unfamiliar. I forgotten most of the streets except for the big ones. I mean, I remember Wayne and Kiwi and Smithville, but the smaller streets, I'd forgotten all of them. Now we went from Tiburon to Motorola. I have no idea how to use the Motorola system. I'm back for eight days. I barely know how to use the radio. Um, so the kid gets born, I'm, I'm gone again. So I really didn't get back into the mix of things until, uh, probably about March of 2018. Um, and then, so all that year is when I was partners with the, the guy that I mentioned in the hospital to the sergeant. And, um, you know, we had a really good, we had a good time being out there. And so, I mean, I even remember <clears throat> when I came back in December, we were looking for this guy who was like supposedly behind like, uh, you know where 333 Linden is? That old building that got burnt down over there off Linden, the old soap factory? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right behind it is a set of train tracks. Well, supposedly this dude was running from us and went up on those train tracks. So I was like, man, I don't know how I'm gonna get up this hill. So we all climb up the hill, there's snow everywhere. And I was like, well, how do we get down from here? And we're all looking around, we have no idea how to get down. So I see one officer to my right just completely fall down the hill. I was like, oh my God. The other one tries to slowly go down, falls too. I was like, well, I'm definitely falling. So I just turned around and uh, so now I'm, I'm facing the train tracks, my butt's towards the bottom of the hill, and I just like put my prosthetic knee down onto the ground, I just slide down on my knee, because the doctor told me, he's like, if you ever fall or need to do anything, use your knee to do it, don't use your other good legs, like you gotta keep your good leg good, but the prosthetic knee, you can do whatever you want, so this thing actually comes in handy for multiple things you wouldn't think about. <laughs> if I'm going to a house and there's vicious dogs, I stick my foot in, and if the dogs bite the foot, then I know don't go in the house, you know, because they'll attack the hell out of you, the rest of you, but if they don't attack a prosthetic leg, then you're good. I use it for that. If somebody wants to get, you know, kind of wild and slam a door in my face, I can just put my foot right in the doorway. They can slam on that as hard as they want. I'm not going to feel it. You can, I can break stuff with it. I can ram it into car windows. It's, it's got all kinds of uses. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. You know, I, I'm not sure if you even know this, but um, our employer likes to uh, throw you in our face on the fireside and just to say that, you know, when we have somebody that's injured and needs more time off. <laughs> well, Byron came back. You know, he was back within a year and he lost his leg. That's a, you know, a lot of people use that excuse all the time. And the, the thing about it that I always tell people, they'll be like, man, I got hurt. They'll be like, But I feel bad saying anything to you about it because of what happened to you. I'm like, look, pain is pain is pain. You know, whether you get shot through the hand or stabbed in the arm, it hurts regardless. It doesn't matter how severe the injury is. You know, now people's mentality when it comes to like wanting to return to work, well, that's going to depend on a multitude of things. One, how much do you like your job? Because if you're really on the, on the fence about it, then you're not really trying to come back, you know, that fast. Two, do you like working? Some people do, some people don't. I have, I love working. I, I love having jobs. Like I've, I've always liked working. So I find it very boring to sit at home and do nothing. Like it's cool for like the first like week. That's called a vacation. But you do that for six months and you're not going to want to do it anymore, which is why people who tend to retire too early always end up getting another job almost immediately afterwards. Um, because it just gives you purpose, you know? So for me, 
I like doing that stuff. So when people are like, man, uh, you know, I hurt my, I hurt my knee doing X, Y, and Z, but I know this happened to you, so I don't want to say anything about it. Like, no, say something about it. I was like, you are not, uh, um, you're not going to not be hurt or not feel anything simply because of what happened to me. So I was like, don't use me as an excuse, you know, but you can use me as a reason as to why you should be motivated to get back to it. Oh, if, if Branch can survive this, I can survive this, you know? So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know why anybody would want to use me as an excuse. But. <laughs> I don't know either, but uh, it's just funny to think of. Your, uh, your attitude, really, during all of this, I mean, were there peaks and valleys, or was it always just you were focused? You were focused on getting back to what you were doing beforehand? Um, I was always focused on wanting to get back to work. But as far as like the the emotional trip, when I was sure it was awful, ask my wife about it. I was <laughs> I was a miserable man for all of 2017. Um, but it was mostly because I was just I think I was just angry, angry about stuff that you don't even you don't think about until you have to think about it. Like um, what I was most upset about was knowing that my kid was going to grow up and I couldn't run after her or play with her, you know, quickly, like, through the yard and stuff, stuff like that, um, or the fact that I had to sit down to put my shoes on, I can't put shoes on standing up anymore, or that, uh, and even to put pants on, it's the same thing, um, I can't stand on both my tippy toes at the same time, S stuff like that that you don't think about, that you have to start thinking about, and you have to start working around that, um, it, it's irrational at first to be upset about it, because I remember I came home from Taco Bell, and I'm sitting on the, I'm sitting on the step, at my house and I start crying and my wife's like what's wrong I was like I have to sit down to take my shoes off and she she didn't really know what to say she didn't understand why I was crying about it but for me it was an upsetting thing because I realized oh this is what it's like for the when you re finally realize something is going to be a certain way for the rest of your life and there's nothing you can do about it it's upsetting at first but then when you accept that that's the way that it is and you're no longer upset about it but I was like that when uh, I got in the shower for the first time and oh my god I smelled awful <laughs> I don't think I showered for like three weeks or something and I didn't even realize it until I was sitting on the couch one day. And I was like, God, what does that smell? And I was like, oh, it's me. I got to take a shower. <laughs> I think I was just worried about like my, my wound getting all messed up. Because the first time I did it, we had a um, we had a chair in the shower. And I had to like sit on the ledge and turn myself over and like hop in there. And I was still really weak. But, but once the shower was on, like there was just blood everywhere because my leg was still... I had this, Well, I, aside from the, the injury on the end of my leg, I had a six-inch gash on the right side of my leg that was like hollow like you put your finger in it um, and I'm not sure even what caused that but I had to be really careful about getting anything in there because you didn't want water in there bacteria to build up in there because I had nurses come every day to change all my dressing and stuff just because of the blood loss that I was having so it was stuff like that it was a lot lots and lots of stuff like that and I mean it's it's changed my personality some um, what I found is uh my emotions now, I used to be very level-headed, um, very kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? I was very mild-mannered about everything, always pragmatic, and I still am to an extent, always very rational. But what I found is when I get upset or sad or something like that, it's like to the extreme. Or when I get angry, it's to the extreme, where before it wasn't like that. You know, I could, I could rationalize everything. But now, if I watch, like, prime example... Um, you ever seen Frozen? Yes. Okay. So when Elsa saves Anna at the end, right? Yeah. I'll start crying about that. It would never have any effect on me before, but after the accident, uh, I feel everything. It's like amplified. 
where as it wouldn't be where it'd be like a very mild response oh you know that's nice you're saving her sister i get that now it's like oh my god i can't believe you're saving her <laughs> you know so that, that that'll be that'll be my my response now and i've been trying i, I went I, you know, I had a bunch of therapy and stuff like that to to get a lot of that under control the the thing is is it's it's an underlying um emotion that's always there you know and it sometimes it'll present itself sometimes it won't but i mean i had i left work early like two weeks ago because i was just being mean to people <laughs> like for for no reason I, and i told my sergeant i was like look i gotta go i was like i am i'm not having a good day everybody's making me angry i was like you're gonna get a bunch of citizen complaints if i stay out here any longer and not to mention it was slow it was like 10 at night and i was like can i can i just go home for the rest of the night I was like, yeah it's fine because there was plenty of people there so i think for me what really helped with the therapy stuff was just being cognizant of what it is I'm experiencing. So. Was that was that through the city's EAP or did you go to uh, outside clinician? So at first I saw um, what's her name starts with a P I think. Platoni. Yes, saw her a few times, and then I saw um, there was another guy, and that was like that was through the city because they offer that kind of stuff. So uh, I talked to I talked to him, and like I said, it was just to kind of get a grasp on the. The emotional aspect of everything because yeah you got the physical part but the it's it's the mental part you got to really get you got to get over and got to get your head around because a lot of people when it comes to recovery especially they can't get past the mental part it's the mental roadblocks so your body will heal itself what was it like kind of on the same subject like when you first drove past the scene or getting on the high getting you know out of your cruiser on the highway so funny thing is and this is what i always ask people because they ask about that is trauma trauma if you don't remember do you have the result of what happened right that's traumatic but if you don't recall the event what's your response you know so no first time i drove by it nothing didn't think anything of it because i don't remember anything um and <laughs> oddly enough you know i got hit on the highway again a year later no. Yeah, February 2019. I was on the highway. And ironically, the same situation. Awful weather. It was where Route 4 meets 75 going south, right? Yeah. Uh, so you've got that big, um, the, the exit ramp goes up over that part of 75 mm -hmm. as it like curves around and leads you over to like that main street area. So this, this poor girl is coming over that, hits her brakes, slams into this guardrail, right? Smashes her car, destroys it. I get there. I'm the first one on scene. Um, I pull up behind her. I'm like, hey. I've got some experience with this. Let's get in my cruiser just to stay safe. So we get back in my cruiser. I was like, I'm going to leave your door propped open um, just in case you need to get out, you need to get anything. I was like, you're not under arrest or anything. I was just going to get your information. So I'm talking to her. And I was like, oh, I was like, what's your name? Blah, blah, blah. Like, okay. I was like, well, you got your license on you? She's like, yeah. I turn around to look at it and I just hear, and I was like, oh, shh. Boom. Smashes the it, whole back end of our car. Yeah. Her door flies open. She falls out of the car. Um, it destroyed the whole back end. I'm talking like, you know what our cruisers look like. The yeah. back end from the bumper to the back seat was gone. Was it uh, the Escape? Yes. Okay. So it was uh, the Explorer, but Explorer, yeah. yeah. Yeah, completely smashed in, gone. I had an Escape. That's why. Gotcha. That. So this this the girl who hit us was some sixteen year old girl, obviously not experienced with the um the, the roadways, which is understandable. So I think what happened is she's coming up around that blind corner, sees my lights, freaks out, hits her brakes, and just slides into us. And I mean, I can hear it and I can see it coming, slams into us. So. She's now on the other side of the uh, roadway because I was on the shoulder and now she's on the other side of the shoulder and cars are still coming. So now I'm thinking to myself, I'm looking around, my shotgun came completely dislodged. The camera came off the front. The, the computer was like hanging to its side. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, 
I was just in another accident. Like I was kind of sore. I'm looking around, I'm processing everything. I'm wiggling my one foot because I was like doing like a mental check, and I was like try to wiggle my right one. I was like, oh yeah, I got a right foot, whatever. Um, so I get, I step out. I'm looking at the girl. I was like, hey, are you okay? She's she's crying. She's scared, but she was fine. The other girl was fine. Um, so I was like, okay, how do I get on the radio? without everybody losing their minds. <laughs> I was like, what do I say? So uh, I get on there, and I'm like, you know, one, 144 to 140. And he's like, go ahead. I was like, uh, yeah, I got hit on the highway again, but I'm okay. And he was like, oh, I'll be out there immediately, blah, blah, blah. I get a text from my major within five minutes, go to the hospital. I was like, I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine. My wife calls me like a minute later. I was like, how on earth is this out of here this fast? She's like, are you okay? I, just heard you I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I was like, I got to go to the hospital because the major just wants me to go get checked out. We get all the stuff done. My my sergeant comes up. He's like, hey, he's like, I got to take you to the hospital. I was like, okay, that's fine. He's like, hold on to my shoulders because like, these roads are terrible. So if you know, there's like a slight grade to the highway right there. I'm holding on to his shoulder and we're both like we're waddling so slow trying to walk up this. I about fell like four times. It was literally just ice. So get there, go to the hospital. My wife shows up and she asked me if I'm okay. All they did, they gave me, gave me an Advil. That was fine. But they grounded me. They were like, he's like, you're done. You can't go back out. I was like, what? I was like, it's 1030 at night. I was like, what do you want me to do? He's like, watch movies. What, what time's your shift then? <laughs> Three. Yeah, so. So I just sat at the district, and then the next day, they were like, the uh, two lieutenants, and started told me, like, yeah, you can't go on the highway anymore. I was like, well, I was like, I got to do my job. I've been on the highway since, of course, but, um, yeah, so that was 2019. I, I get anxiety when I get on the highway, so I can't, I can just, I can't imagine. Well, just like with anything, you can't. You, you can't the hyper vigilance. You just can't you know? do your job scared, you know. Imagine you're going to a fire, you know. Uh, what's going to happen is your training will kick in. You'll go and you'll do your job. Not like, oh my god, this is a crazy fire. I'm not going in here. I'm not dealing with this. You can't. You can't do that. Just like I can't go deal with this domestic violence suspect. No, you go and you do your job and then you get out. And then in hindsight, you think about either how crazy it is or why on earth did I do this or oh my god, I can't believe I survived that. You know, if someone calls coming on the highway. I just try to be more cognizant of what I'm doing and the position I'm in and stuff like that. You know, but you you can't you can't stop life. It's gonna happen whether you want it to or not. So I, I just can't go out there scared. If I did, I mean honestly, they told me I could do whatever I want. If I wanted to go inside and do something else, I could go do that. But I don't want to. I like working on the street. I like interacting with people. I like talking to people. And yeah, you're gonna have to deal with you know some nonsense from time to time. You know, so I stole my my city issue trash can. Okay, <laughs> you know, I'll take your theft report for that. Um, <laughs> But, but then you get you get your more serious cases, you know, which is what makes the job a lot of fun and enjoyable. Not to mention, I mean, once you're in the cruiser, you're your own boss. You can make what you want out of your day, you know. So Some people really like the drug stuff. Some people like talking to prostitutes, which, by the way, they are just a, a Wikipedia of street knowledge. <laughs> they know a ton of stuff out there. So, you, you know, you get in good with them. You can ask them questions and be friendly with them. Um, you can do your stuff with, like, juveniles, which is what I spend a lot of time with now because, you know, my running after Dope Boy days are over. But those juveniles turn into adults, that you got to eventually deal with. And if they remember you from when you were a kid, just like I remember police officers from when I was a kid, you know, you're cool with them once you're older. So, uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying to work with a lot of them right now. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just really can't go in afraid to do any part of the job. I just do it as it comes. Oh, that's awesome. Let me uh, kind of segue, not really segue, but just switch to the fencing aspect. Uh-huh. At what point did you decide yeah I, I want to try this i'm gonna i want to keep doing this july of 2018 because i got a phone call from a lawyer in columbus who said uh he got the uh the go-ahead from don anthony who's the head of the uh united states fencing association said hey 
he basically called me and uh, said, hey, would you be interested in representing the U.S. and in international competitions in wheelchair fencing? And I was like, no, not really. <laughs> I was like, but, I was like, if it doesn't cost me any money, then yes, because the only thing it'll really cost me is time, you know, training and stuff like that. But by then, again, I, I, I was already an A-level fencer by 2010. Um, when I was fencing, when I was competing, when I was training for, for that, I mean, we're talking 25 hours a week I was training. So I was, I was in school, I was working, I was training, and I was in the gym. So my life was just full, you know, all the time. Got my A in 2010, which is like, that's like the, just the highest ranking that you can get. Um, and then I continued to train, you know, through that with the idea that when I turned 40, I was going to try, try out for the, the world veteran team. Um, but because that didn't happen... Like I said, my buddy Laurent mentioned in 2017 I should do it. I was like, nah. But then I got a call from uh, Sam, and he said, you know, are you interested in doing this? I said, okay. But I'm going to need some things. I need, if I'm going to do it, he's like, well, just tell me, tell me what you need. It's like, we'll sponsor it. We'll take care of it. I said, okay. Well, I'm going to need a competition chair. I knew nothing about competition wheelchairs. So I was like, I'm going to need a chair. I still had a bunch of my old fencing equipment, so there wasn't really anything new I needed there. Um, and I was like, I need somewhere to train. So he's like, okay. So... Um, I started going out to Columbus at the Fencing Fitness Center out there in Dublin. Started training out there a little bit. Now, I hadn't touched a foil in probably about a year and a half or so, which is the one, the main weapon that I fence. Um, started training out there with them, and then I originally wasn't going to be able to go to the Pan Am Games. There was some weird thing about the timing. Like, I hadn't competed in any international events, so there was, like, some weird stuff about being able to go. Um, but somebody pulled some strings somewhere, and they said, hey, you can go up to the, uh, the Pan Am champion." ships in Saskatoon and that'll be your first international competition and we'll kind of see you know where things go from there so I said okay I was like when is it he's like oh you got to go on I think September is when it was I was like oh my god I've, I've been in that chair like maybe three times and you want me to go fence in at this international world competition not to mention the Pan Am game so it's everybody from Canada America and South America and uh he was like yeah he's like just go up there get a feel for it I said okay um <clears throat> I go up there I end up winning gold I won the whole thing relatively easily and I was like oh this ain't this ain't bad at all I think I won the final match like 15-4 um so that kind of got my name on the uh, uh on the map as far as people remembering like who I was and stuff like that because I was I was known in the fencing circuit already um in the Great Lakes section especially just me and my friends because the the four of us were the main A's in the area because they're hard to come by um at least in the Midwest anyway so went up won that um, and then I just started competing internationally after that. I got on the, the U.S. para-fencing team, which I'm still on. Um, and uh, I started, I think I was in 10 countries in 2019, just traveling the world and fencing and trying to represent the U.S. You best probably didn't get anywhere last year, did you? Nope. I was, uh, the last one, I was in Hungary in January, fenced there. I remember hearing them say that the Chinese weren't showing up to the event. I was like, why? They're like, there's some kind of flu going on there, so they can't come. I said, okay. Then I went to the Olympic Training Center in February or at the end of January, beginning of February, I was training out there. Um, and as I'm sitting there, we were going over some stuff for the Olympics, and they had said, hey, they just canceled Brazil, which was where I was supposed to go in March of 2020. And I was like, what did they cancel for? I was like, oh, that flu or whatever that was in China has now popped up down there, so they're canceling for that. I was like, well, that's dumb. So I was super mad about that. Ended up going home early because my wife's grandmother's health was deteriorating, and she ended up passing away like two days after I got back. And then... Uh, they said, no, everything's canceled. No Olympics, nothing. And I was like, oh, so I haven't done anything, no training, nothing, because the COVID restrictions have shut down pretty much everything. Because that, uh, a few weeks after I got back from the Olympic place, 
Uh, I just got picked up as an auxiliary assistant coach at OSU so I could train with the uh, collegiate athletes because there's really weird there's really weird laws that pertain to and by laws I mean like laws within the, the college NCAA stuff pertaining to who can train with collegiate athletes and who can't and the only way I could is if I if I got picked up by the school because I wasn't an alumni I never went there I never took classes there or anything so I didn't have any ties to OSU but this girl was having a baby she's like you can take my spot while I'm gone and come up there and train I was like that's great but then they shut down school the same week I was supposed to start so didn't even get to go up there and get any experience with them do you have anything coming up no I've, I've talked to the guy who runs the Olympic training stuff and uh he said everything is kind of like in hiatus so I don't need they said supposedly they're supposed to be doing this stuff in 2021 but honestly I don't know if it's going to happen and I was going to retire last year anyway I've been doing this since 1999 um and I'm going to be 30 I'll be 37 so old by the time well as far as like you got to think about athletes in general right sure you, you hit your sure. peak you hit your peak between 17 and like 23 you know when i mean think about michael phelps when he won all those medals he was like what 2021 20, usain bolt was like 1920 so yeah 37 is, that's old for competing now granted there's people who are the the lawyer who represented me um was also a fencer i mean he's in the 60s he's on the world vet team he's very good um, so yeah, you can continue to do it, but it's such a commitment all the time it takes and stuff like that, you know, I mean, it, to be in 10 countries, that's, I'm in a country like every six weeks or so, you know, five, six days at a time. I'm working around that. I'm missing time with my kids and all that other stuff. I don't want to continue. I don't want to do that for another three years. You know, the time in between. It kind of gets to that work-life balance. Well, yeah, because then I'm always gone. It's like, I'm at work, I'm either, or I'm training for, comp if I'm not at work, I'm training for competitions. If I'm not doing that, I'm at the gym. If I'm not at the gym, I'm out of the country, you know? So then when is, when's the time for the family? And I mean, my wife understands that, it, that it's important. And if I want to do the best representation that I can, you know, for the United States, well, then I got to put, put in a certain amount of effort. Um, but I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to take away from, you know, the, the weight training I do in the, the gym. Cause that's what I do for like my peace of mind. That's what keeps me balanced. You know, that's what levels me out. I always get kind of antsy, like if I don't go to the gym and I don't work out, you know, so my three days that I'm off when I'm not working are always really difficult because I, I'm finding, I'm trying to find stuff to do. Now I do love shooting, so I got a lot of guns, so I, mean, I can clean my guns or I can go out and I can shoot and stuff like that, but with the price of ammo, there's no point doing it now. <laughs> Indeed. You're, you're, you're about the only person I think I know that actually has been to Saskatoon as well. Oh, you've been there? <laughs> yeah, there's nothing there, but get this. So I looked at the Y, right? There's a YMCA in Saskatoon. I called them. I was like, look, I'm a YMCA member down here in the States. Can I come and lift weights there? They're like, oh, you got a membership? I was like, yeah. They're like, yeah, just bring your membership. So I brought it and swiped it, and they accepted it, and I got to lift there. That's the first time I've ever used it out of the country, and it worked. Nice. So, yeah. I was like, that's a, that's a great network. I'm probably going back to Saskatchewan here in just a few months. So Did you go for like either hunting or the Metallica stuff? Because there was a huge Metallica concert there. No, just oh. doing... Doing my little consulting stuff on the side there with with their workers comp company. Oh okay, yeah, it's a uh, it's a very small little place. I had never heard of it, but that's just where the event. I had, was. No, I've I've been there twice and I had a really good times with both of them. So I'm looking forward to number three. Yeah, and what I what I wanted to do. So I got a grant recently um, for uh, money to help me travel and pay for stuff, like any equipment I need or anything. And I can't even I can't even use it. I mean I have it. It just sits in the bank. I could buy other stuff. I could go buy a car or something if I wanted to. But um, be, I can't even go to like Italy or France, which is what I really want to do because they have training camps there. But we're barred from traveling. We can't go to Europe right now. So 
there it's like i'm just like sitting on my hands really because i could go i mean prime example could go to ukraine right i could go to ukraine for six weeks and train for what it would cost to stay for one week in paris and i get a really good training camp because the italians will show up some of the chinese will show up um people from poland will show up you know so you get really good training there but i mean you can stay six weeks in ukraine for a thousand dollars you know but it'll it'll run you like 1500 to stay in paris or england or something like that now i've got friends in england i could go live with there and i could go train with them but again you can't travel there so yeah and until they lower some of these restrictions and stuff i don't know what's going to happen and they're they're cautious in the paralympic stuff because i'll uh, <clears throat> unlike myself where my my injury or handicap or whatever is from an accident the people who have health conditions that cause their problems cannot be exposed to this virus because it can be super dangerous for them or it's not going to be dangerous for me you know my health is fine but if you have some yeah, immunocompromised style disease or something yeah you can't expose yourself to that even if you want to compete you can't you know so I, I understand why they're trying to do like everything in a bubble but i'm one guy it'd be super nice if i could just go you know back to back to pisa or rome or something and just train with those guys and i loved it there italy was beautiful yeah the two places that really caught me off guard i never really wanted to go to kyoto japan was amazing i could live there like in a heartbeat i could live there um and pisa Pisa and Florence, like Italy in general, their coffee, oh my God, is amazing. Now, when you go there, are you bringing a family at all, or is it just business? No. So, generally, it's in and out. Like, I make these trips about five days. Competitions are about ten days long, but I just find the days that I fence, and I, I work around those days, because for the length of time that I'm gone is the amount of time i got to make up when I get back to work. Because how they do it now, I don't have to burn through comp or vacation or anything like that. They just adjust my schedule. So, I might come back and have to work eight days straight. So, that's nice. Yeah, it's really nice. But I wish the fire department was that flexible. <laughs> but it's well, I got I, I got a lot of permission from you know the command staff and stuff. They wanted to be really supportive of it, so I, I appreciate that. But they uh, they let me kind of work around that. But that can be really hard to do depending on how stacked the tournaments are. Because if I have a tournament training and then a tournament, and I need thirteen days, well, how am I going to make that up in, in two pay periods? You know, becomes a, becomes a question. So let me ask you this: I, I just thought of something else, and you're working a. Uh... What, 3 to 3? 3, 3 p.m. to 3 a.m.? 5, so 5 to 3 a.m.? 5 to 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. Four nights a week? Yep. How's that whole kind of shift work working out? I mean, and you got, again... I love it. A bunch of little ones at home? Oh, it's, it's easy. So, prior to becoming a cop, I worked in the lighting industry doing, like, electrical work. Mm-hmm. And I worked 4 to 2 in the morning. So, 5 to 3 was a cake adjustment. It's one hour, you know. Saying I worked four days a week. I worked Monday through Thursday. Are you able to actually go home and... And sleep, like mm-hmm. get some good sleep when when you get off. To find good, I have kids, <laughs> so I get I get to bed about four. I wake up around ten, hang out okay. with the kids about three, and then I go to the gym from three to four, and then I go to work. Okay. So and that is I'm, I'm a schedule guy. My schedule's got to be consistent, and as long as it's the same, everything works out exactly how I need to, and I can just fit everything in, and in the time that I have available to do it. You know that's why I like my schedule the way that it is. That's why I haven't adjusted my schedule. Like I said. I could do anything else I wanted to do. I don't want to work five days a week. I don't want to work eight to five or eight to four or whatever, you know. So the five to three stuff works the best. I have enough seniority um, at the department now. If I wanted to work on days, I'm sure I could. I could work seven to seven to what, five. Four or five years on. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You're still you're still a kid. Well, it's because they hired so many other people. So there was that big hiring freeze. Yeah. Um, 
and then our class came out and I was out of the 104 they're at the one they're at 110 now so six classes have come out since I've come out in the past three years so that just bumps you up super yep. fast whereas prior to us the 103 there's a five-year gap in front of them so if you were a common seniority long time to be a rookie yeah yeah if you were at the bottom you just stayed that you were the guy on midnights with tuesday wednesday thursday off for five years straight and there was nothing you could do about it you know because that's just where you were stuck but then we came out and then other classes came out so then i went from like 85th to like 30th so not hard to get what you want i have saturday sunday monday off with you know four years on well it'll be five in april but that's a young department yeah oh there's oh yeah the guy one of the guys from my class can retire and he's like 43 Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, crazy, right? I'm that like, dude, is. For, 43, man, you barely lived half your life. Right, I want to get you out of here in a minute. I've got what I call 25 questions. Okay. And even though you're here live with me, I didn't show you these. Okay. I'm not going to make you do all 25, but what it is is they're a bunch of random questions, fun stuff. Okay. Um, just throw out a number, and I'll ask you the question. 13. Favorite movie? Oh, it's a it's a tie between Forrest Gump and Back to the Future. Okay, I can't argue with any of those. Well, Robert Zemeckis directed both of them, so no surprise. Right. Uh, seven. What is something popular now, but everyone will look back at in five years from now and think it's stupid or embarrassing? TikTok. Two. Okay. okay. So number two, man, you're going through these. Uh, toilet paper holder, over. Or under? So, I would think about it like closest to the wall, away from the wall, so close to the wall, whichever one that one would be. Like, you pull it from underneath? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's the wrong answer. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. Uh, What else you got? 24. Alcoholic beverage of choice? I'm straight edge. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't smoke. Okay, that was an easy answer. Good deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, how about another one? One. First job. Like ever? Ever. At McDonald's. Okay. Worked there when I was 15 and a half. It was the first job I could get. At the corner of Union and 48 in Englewood. Okay. It's still there today. <laughs> uh, three. <laughs> how, well, how, long, how long did you work there? Uh... Six months, then they tore it down. They transferred me to the one on Main Street, right over off uh, 70 and four, 70 and 40 in Inglewood. Yeah. Um, and then I got fired from there because a, I asked one manager if I got the day off for my friend's wedding, and they said, yeah, they didn't put it down on the schedule. Another manager came, saw that I wasn't at work, and fired me. They were trying to fire us because they couldn't take on all the employees that came from the other McDonald's. They were trying to get rid of as many people as they can. So then I went and worked at Burger King the next day because jobs were plentiful back when I was 16. So <laughs> it was very easy. Nice. Uh, number three was first concert. Corn, nineteen ninety seven. Where? Uh, Hair Arena. I played with Rob Zombie. That's a hell of a show. Oh, it was wild. I Rob, don't think I was there. I've seen them both. Rob Zombie's stage show was still the most incredible stage show I'd ever seen. They had like forty five foot flames, and I could feel when I was like at the top bleachers. My dad specifically told me not to go, and my buddy Brent, his mom, came and picked us up. I got home five minutes before my dad did. He got home at, at midnight. I got home at eleven fifty five. Didn't know that I went. He knows now. That's okay. <laughs> nice. I miss Hair Arena. But yeah. That was my first job. Yeah? Yeah, I was an usher. Let me show you to your seat. 
Yeah, yeah, that was it was a crazy concert. It was it was cool to see, you know. But I was a huge I was a huge fan of Corn Rise in seventh and eighth grade, and so that was that was something I, I really wanted to see. So it was cool seeing it, especially when they were in their prime. I think Life Is Peachy had just come out, um, and of course Rob Zombie was huge at that time. That's before he really got into making movies. So that was a good experience. Um, four. First album that I've ever owned. Yeah. Mm, I think it was The Color and the Shape by Foo Fighters. If it wasn't that, then it was... Um, was it a CD or was it cassette? Day? It was a CD. Okay. CD. Well, if you want to do cassettes, then... Uh, maybe... Whatever album had Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Whatever album that was. That might have been my first cassette tape. So an actual Queen cassette tape? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Nice. I grew up listening to a lot of classic rock, so. Uh, number eight. Favorite book? The Catcher in the Rye or The Stand by Stephen King. One, either one. Nice. The Stand is incredible, um, but I've always loved The Catcher in the Rye. If I had to do it on which one I've read the most, then it's probably The Stand. I think I've read that three times. So, But, I mean, that's like a 1,200-page book, but it's really good. So, yeah. Nice. Uh, 11. We might go through all 25 of these. Oh, I can do them fast. You're, yeah, we're, this is like lightning round. <laughs> Number 11. Uh, who would play you in a movie regarding your life? Like who would do a good job at it or who would just play me? Who would you want to play you? Oh, who would I want to play me? Uh, hmm. I have to find like a short black guy. <laughs> uh... Like, in their current age or, like, when they were younger? Because I, I think Cuba Gooden Jr. would do a good job as me. Um, yeah. Or, uh, I can't remember, there's, there's an actor I'm thinking of and I can't remember the guy's name. But I'll just stick with him. He should work fine. Okay. Uh, 12. Zoo or amusement park? Uh, which amusement park? Or does it not matter? I just mean in general. Um, Let's do amusement park. Okay. Yeah, Kings park. Island or, or Cedar Point, Cedar probably. Point. Yeah. Yeah, Cedar Point for sure. Cedar Point's got some really nice rides. Uh, three. You did that already first concert. Oh, did I? Uh, I could just run through the other ones you haven't done. Sure. Favorite quote. Favorite quote. Um. It is. It's a history one. What? It's it's by Desmond Tutu. He said it, and it was it's it's the one. It's like he who does not know history is doomed to repeat it. But he said it differently. But it's essentially that quote. Okay. Is is my favorite one. How'd you manage trash? You already kind of said that. Jim. Yep. Uh, unlimited sushi or unlimited tacos for life. Tacos. I don't like sushi. Favorite comedian? Hmm. Uh, man. You know what's funny? I think Seinfeld is hilarious, but not his stand-up. The show. The show. Phenomenal. I love how it's written. I love his delivery. I'm, I wouldn't go see him in stand-up, though. Um, it's my favorite comedian. Probably. 
probably Dave Chappelle. I met him a bunch of times, and he's just funny in person, too. There are a lot of people out there who are, like, really good, though. I saw Seinfeld at Memorial Hall, mm-hmm. which was kind of cool. And, and I enjoyed like it. Like the person or a stand-up? The stand, his stand-up. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I ran into Chappelle randomly, too. Mm-hmm. And because uh, he used to, and I know he just bought a comedy, or he's building a comedy club. It's called Old Firehouse in Yellow Springs. But mm-hmm. he would come into Wiley's. Yeah, all the time and just do random like stuff. Like it would yeah. be a Thursday night open mic night and there's mm-hmm. Dave Chappelle. That's how you test your material. <laughs> and he would, but he wouldn't even, he would just talk. He would have conversations with a dozen people in the audience. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was the, like I wish they recorded it because that was the best stuff. That's how you know, that's how you find out what works. Oh man. Yeah, that that's how great. a lot of it starts. Yeah, he's, he's hilarious. Uh, let's see. What's something that you tried that you'll never ever try again? Like food? Could be anything. Um, getting pepper sprayed in the face. That <laughs> <laughs> was miserable. I'm going to take your word for that one. <laughs> yeah, that's awful. I don't want to ever do that again. Is that worse than being tased? Oh, a million. I'd get tased a hundred times before I ever get pepper sprayed again. Okay. Because once, you, cause once the taser turns off, you feel fine doesn't hurt or anything pepper spray that's that hurting for 18 hours oh it burned it was horrible all right what's a product that you would stockpile if you found out they weren't going to sell it anymore ammo (laughs) okay any tattoos tons any special meanings behind any of them every one of them nice see i got this says suffer survive persevere this is from accident and then I just have my whole back is done with a bunch of different stuff. That's nice. See, so, I've got all this, you know, you get this job early. I have all this money. I'm single, no kids. And I get all these tattoos that are meaningless. They're, <laughs> they're, there's nothing behind them. They're just Lord of the Rings, Captain America. I mean, whatever. Well, uh, you know, you can have themes. Third stuff. Sometimes it doesn't have to mean anything. But I know my buddies will have, like, all the horror characters. You know, Jason, Freddy, Pumpkinhead. And they'll get, like, all that. So there's, like, a theme behind it. You know, the, the tattoos I'm not super fond of are just patchwork tattoos. You know, it's like, oh, I got a, I got a yin yang sign here and a key here and a horseshoe here. I'm like, okay, like, but do they mean it? Oh, no, they just look cool. Yeah. Tribal tattoos. That's, yeah, that's it. That's, that's me. You're <laughs> describing me. Thank you. Uh, favorite actor or actress? You want both? Yeah. Why not? Okay. We're going to go through all these questions my, now. My favorite actress is probably Julia Roberts, because I always had a huge crush on her since Pretty Woman. Um, like, there's, there's far better actresses, but I just like her a lot. And then my favorite actor... Um, Liam Neeson was phenomenal in Schindler's List, but probably Tom Hanks. He's just only because he plays in Forrest Gump. He plays in a lot of movies that I like, but God, that's a tough one. Um, who else is really good? Yeah, I'll stick with them. Those two should be fine. Those are good. I like those. Uh, first car. Uh, Astro van. Had shag carpet and blinds in it. <laughs> it was a cool little vehicle. Nice. Uh, do you have a special place you'd like to visit regularly? Uh, here or overseas? Hell, let's do both. Hamburg, Germany. Overseas. Favorite city of all time. 
uh, here, probably Chicago. Love Chicago. Chicago's like a, a less dense New York City, you know. But now those are just those are just cities like places I like just in general, like settings, man, green trees and mountains. So, you know, north northwest Montana, Smoky Mountains and Carolinas, southeast Tennessee, places like that. Favorite dessert. Uh, When's the last time you had a dessert? It's it's gonna be peanut butter Oreo concretes from JD's in Inglewood, okay. or double doozy cookies at the American Cookie Co. in the Dayton Mall. Nice. Those, uh, I mean, double me, doozies. Yes. If you asked me a couple years ago, Swiss cake rolls, I eat a whole box of those and not think anything of it. <laughs> but yeah, double, I can't get enough double doozy cookies. Those are absolutely delicious. I I know exactly which ones you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, the, the chocolate, chocolate, the. Th- inch thick of icing in the middle yeah, yes i can destroy those and if not if i don't have those options white sheet cake with blue icing there you I go i need a whole one of those uh we're almost done here uh favorite album like musical album yeah uh, doesn't matter the genre just in general overall. in general yeah I can give you my let me give you my top three just because I won't be able to narrow it down to just okay. one. So through being cool by Saves the Day, you can listen to that album. Now it's only like thirty two minutes long. You can listen to it nonstop. Great power pop album. Um, Natten's Madrigal by Ulver, which is a black metal album made by a Norwegian band. Best black metal album of all time. Phenomenal album. Horrible recording, but that's the idea. Um, and then the album that really got me into power metal is probably Colony by In Flames is a, an incredible power metal album. So those would be the top three. Okay. Well, we can one more. We can call it the Mount Rushmore. Uh, fourth album. That's yeah. really good. Uh, hmm. Let me think here. Um. Probably the Blue album by Weezer. That's just, that's just like the Saves the Day album. You can listen from start to finish. Like, can. no problem. You don't have to skip any any track on there because they're all really good. So, I know the, the genres are all over, but... That was you know. that was one of my first CDs. I think I got it from BMG. Mm-hmm. Remember that? I don't think so. The Columbia House or BMG where you buy, you get like three CDs for a penny and then you had a buy a bunch you don't remember those at all yeah. see I'm, old, I'm a little bit older than you okay some of my listeners are like oh I remember that I think <laughs> I, I think I still owe them money yeah uh Chicago or New York pizza uh now, you already said Chicago but what about their pizza well Chicago's like deep dish New York's like the big like thin foldy kind uh I'll take deep dish yeah I'll take Chicago okay uh last one I got is favorite professional sports team Well, I'll just stick with the team that was my favorite for the longest period of time because I don't have one now, but it was the Indianapolis Colts was my favorite team for like 15 years. Yeah, but this is back when uh, Marshall Falk was playing and Peyton Manning and all them. So it's a long so time. No, you're not a homer. No Bengals, no Rens, no. I don't watch anything. I don't have time. My wife hates sports. <laughs> there you go. I don't remember the last time I watched a game from start to finish. 
So, but I like I like college sports. I'm a Buckeyes fan. Buckeyes so. fan. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll let you get off here. He's Byron Branch. I'm Jim Bernica, and I think I've taken enough of his time already this afternoon. So. Thank you, Connoisseur. I appreciate it.